Thank you so much. You may be seated. Well, thanks for being here again this morning as we just continue this series. And we're looking at this issue of, of just the, the local church this morning. And we started out this series looking at what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What, what does that look like in our day and in our culture? What does it mean when someone says they're a Christian or when someone says they're a follower of Christ? If you've been with us, you know that there's basically four things. It's believing in Jesus. It's a relationship with him to where that you have a relationship with him. It's both personal and public. Um, it's different than being private. Some people think it's just personal and private. The scripture would teach that it's both personal and out of that personal relationship with him, there's this overflow and it's public. In other words, that you have a, you have a ministry. Or, you know what? I think I'm on back here. I think that's the problem because uh, I need to be careful where I stand. So, uh, but they'll get that taken care of. And so it's believing in Jesus. The second thing is this, it's, be, it's becoming a disciple of Christ. It's becoming a, uh, to where life groups and, and following him and walking with him. It's belonging to his family. That's church participation and being connected to a local body of believers that do life together. And then the last thing is this, it's building his, his kingdom. And so this morning we're just going to go a little bit deeper into this about belonging to his family. And listen, let me tell you something. I love the local church. And I love the local church when it is firing on all eight cylinders and it's expanding in ministry and it is doing well and people are coming to Christ and, and people are moving into life groups and discipling. There's transformation going on and the ministry is expanding not only locally but globally as well. I love the local church when it's struggling. I love the local church when it has challenges and difficulty. I love the local church because the scripture says this. The scripture says that that God is using and will use the local church to, to, uh, to spread the gospel so that people, the community can look in and see what God is like by the way that the church conducts themselves and loves one another, encourages one another, and supports one another. I've been a part of churches all the way from, from well, from zero. Uh, that was here in 94 and in 95 before we had any new members. Uh, it was just like zero, and I've been a part of a church from all the way from zero to where you know what, we just had a hope and a dream and a prayer of what Fellowship of the Rockies one day would, would look like and be like, that it would go deep down into the community and community ministries and, and, uh, and then what it would look like in our state and what it looked like globally. And then look at us now in like four services and still expanding and still growing. And so it's an amazing thing to be a part of church. And so I've been a part of church when there were like zero members. I've been a part of a church that... Uh, all the way up to 24,000 members. I've had Dr. John Bazzano, my pastor from Houston, Texas, come a couple of times and speak to you. And so I've seen church on all different levels. And so I, I, I just, I'm just a church guy. I love the local church. And you know what? I don't understand how anybody can make it in life without a church and without a community of believers. And so today, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're just going to look at this issue about how we relate to one another and how we relate as a church. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. And so chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that he, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together. This is the habit of some. But encouraging one another in all the day more as you see the day, and that's really important, day. The word day is capitalized. There's a reason for that. As you see the day drawing near, whenever you see the word that day or the day in the New Testament, in the day, the word day is capitalized. What he is referring to is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the end times. And what scripture says is the closer that we get to the end times, the more that we should be meeting together, not the less. That we understand, and you understand in Matthew, the scripture says, Jesus says, as you can see when that day is drawing near, it will begin to get darker and dark, darker. Our world will get darker and darker. And in those days, we need each other more than ever before. I mean, when you look at our world, you look at our society right now, it is becoming more and more anti-Christian in America. Which who would have ever thought? Who would have ever believed and right now, we're in this battle on the sanctity of marriage and what is marriage. And, we're, and let me tell you something. What, it, what is it attacking? It's not attacking marriage. It's attacking the church and the authority of Scripture, what biblical marriage is all about. And our world is getting darker and darker. And the Scripture says this. That as that day begins to come closer and closer, that we should be drawing together more. But what he says, there are some that are neglecting or abandoning the church. Three things for us this morning is how we relate. The first thing is this, is it is a privilege. Well, it is a privilege. Verse 19 again, the word therefore, remember I've told you this, that therefore in the, in the New Testament is a, is a transitional word. It's a word of transition. Uh, it's a pointer, if you will, that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to immediately ask yourself the question, what is it there for? Because it's usually, like in our time, it would, we would say in conclusion. It would say like when we have a, a conversation with someone and we talk with someone and we say, because of the information that I've given you, because of what I've said to you, because of that, this is what I would like for you to do as a result of that. And that's what this is saying. It's pointing up to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, is coming and says, because of what I've told you, this is how I'd like for you to behave. And so let's just look at this, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifice, so he's speaking of the Old Testament, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, God never gave us the law, the Old Testament law, to make us perfect. God never, never gave us the law to make us right with, with him. He never gave us the law so that they could have right standing with him. When you look at the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, you, you find that when someone would measure themselves by the law, they always fell short. They never measured up. And so the law, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the law was never given up to us to make us right with him or to make us perfect. And he, he goes on and discusses this argument, verse 2. Otherwise, I mean, if, they, if the law did make us perfect, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. In other words, what he's saying is if the law could make you perfect, if you could live a good enough life, if you could live a perfect enough life, then there would be a sense of, of graduation. There would be a sense of moving on. There would be a sense that you've graduated and you've been made perfect. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. That wasn't, that wasn't the law. The law was to help us to understand that we fall short. The, the law was help us to understand that we cannot live a good enough life. We cannot live a perfect life. That we will always fall short. That we need a sacrifice for us. And so he goes on, verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for, bulls, uh, for the blood of bulls and goats to... It's impossible for them to take away sin. In other words, again, the law cannot make you perfect. Verse 10. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Man, once and for all. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. As he fulfilled the law. And he went to the cross on our behalf. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were not sufficient. But Jesus, God in flesh, came and offered himself for us once and for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And again, you just see this thought repeated. Remember I've told you in the New Testament when a, when a word or when a phrase is repeated... It is, it is emphasis. I mean, he's trying to communicate something desperately, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single, single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of, of God. Verse 14, for by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not how well you parent. Your identity is not how, how, how great of a mom you have been or a dad. Your identity is not in your profession and it's not in what you do. Your identity is not who people say you are. Your identity is in Christ. And he says that in Christ, that do you realize in Christ you are totally and completely loved? You are perfect in Christ. Listen, let me tell you something. If you try to find your identity in anything else, you will live a roller coaster of emotion. And our identity is in Christ, in Christ alone. And and Jesus did for us what, what we could have never have done, what the law could have never accomplished. And then watch this, verse 17. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. What? No more. Why? Because it's a perfect sacrifice. Because in Christ we're totally and completely forgiven. In Christ we are perfect. Aren't you glad that you have a God that does not forget? He chooses not to remember. There is a difference, right? There's a huge difference between forgetting and forgiving. And we just got to get this, and we just got to understand this. Maybe like this, that, that if, I, if, 
if I sinned against Karen, if, if I was a jerk, this is just hypothetical. I don't know that's ever happened, and it may never happen, but this is just hypothetical issue here. But if I, said, if I was a jerk to care and I said some things I shouldn't have done, I, uh, I said I did some things I shouldn't have, uh, have done, if I was just a jerk and I just sinned against her and I just offended her, well, and, and I went on and she went on and then sooner or later, you know what, she just kind of forgot about it or I kind of wondered if she forgot about it, wondered if she was still thinking about that and, and there would be a little bit of an awkwardness, right? And it's, there's not a lot of healing in that. You just kind of hope, I hope she does forget what I said. I hope she does forget what I said. But you just don't know. But what would happen if, if I came to her and I said, you know what, here's the deal. I was a jerk, and I should have never said that. I should have never done that. And so here's what I'm asking. I'm asking that would you forgive me? And would you forgive me? And she turns to me and says, you know what, that hurt me deeply what you said. That hurt me deeply what you did. The fact is it devastated me. And I choose to not only forgive you, but it's done. I won't remember it anymore. I won't bring it up anymore in an argument or a dispute to kind of level the playing field. I will totally and completely forgive you. We won't even talk about this anymore. See, we have a God that doesn't just forget because he's all-knowing. He, he could remember everything. We have a God that chooses willfully not to remember your sins any longer. To where there's some people that are still asking God for forgiveness of a sin that they committed a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that they're no longer that person. They have repented, they have changed, and they feel the guilt. And let, let me tell you something, and that guilt does not come from God. And they're repeatedly asking God for forgiveness of a sin that he's already forgiven them of. And you know what? When you do that, God's like, What? That's news to me. You did what? I forgave you. I didn't forget. Man, I chose. And I'm telling you, you were never, and I was never designed to live in the guilt and the condemnation of the past. That we have a God. I mean, he goes on, look at this, verse, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these. In other words, where there's total and complete forgiveness. I mean, the scripture says that God has taken, taken, taken our sins and put them behind him, never to look on them again or never to remember them ever again. Scripture says that he, will, he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. And the scripture says where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin, that you are totally and completely forgiven. Listen, let me tell you something. This may, for some of you, this may be the most important thing of this message that we, you would just grab 
who you are in Christ, that your identity is in him, and that you are totally and completely forgiven, that you are perfect, you have been perfected in Christ, and you can live life set free from the decisions and the sins of the past, because the scripture says that Jesus did for us what the what the law could not do. The law was some do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, right? And Jesus didn't give us religion. He gave us a relationship. And that out of that relationship, out of that intimacy with him, then his life flows out of us. And the more that we know him, the more that we love him, and the more that we love him, the more that his life flows out of us. In verse eight, verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have, have what? We have confidence to enter the holy places by, by keeping the law, by living a perfect life, by doing all the do's and don't doing any of the don'ts. Where's our confidence? Our confidence in ourselves. Our confidence is living a perfect enough life, a good enough life. Where's our confidence? See, your confidence, your identity is in Christ. And he says, he says, for since we have confidence to what? To enter the holy place by the blood of, of Jesus. See, that's why this word therefore is so important. This word is, is there to help us understand that, man, it is a privilege to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because through that relationship, we have a perfect relationship with, with God. And because of that, listen, we can enter the presence of God. In fact, is we steward the presence of God. In the Old Testament, this wasn't something that they had access to. Only one person had access to the presence of God. And that was like once a year. Watch this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart because of this. Therefore, because of all of this, because of our relationship with him, because of forgiveness of sin, therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean for, from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. And so he says that, you know what, because of that, because of who we are in Christ, because of our identity, because of the blood of Christ, that he lived a perfect life, he lived a sinless life, he went to the cross on our behalf. Atonement, which is a, is a theological term that just basically means this, that when we walk in relationship with him, he has reconciled us to God. And that because of that, that we can come into the presence of God. See, in, in the Old Testament, only the, only the high priest could come into the, the presence of God. If you, if you look at the sacrificial system or you look at the, the, the temple and in, in, uh, the Jewish temple, and we've been to Israel and we've walked through the different courts, but there's all these different courts. There's the outer courts and the, the courts of Gentile and, courts of, and all these courts. And then, then as you go in, the, 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 the inner, one of the inner courts is the court of priests. And inside the court of priests, is the Holy of Holies. There's this huge curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the court of priests. I mean, it was, it was um, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about six inches thick. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And once a year, the high priest would, would cleanse himself, and there was a ritual that he went through, wore certain clothing that was pure and without blemish and fault, confessed all of his sins, and he would go into the presence of God, what? On the behalf of the people. Anyway, he represented God to the, the, the people to God. 
And fact is, they so worried that if something happened to him while he was in there, if he died or something, nobody else could come in and get him because you had to be without spot and blemish. And, and so he would wear bells, they'd tie a rope to him in case he had a heart attack. They could like drag him out because nobody else could go in and get him. And he would go in on behalf of the people. And then Matthew's gospel says, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, man, the curtain was torn in two. See, the curtain was there in the Old Testament to remind the people that your sin separates you from God. And by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the tearing of the curtain, it said, now then, because he was the perfect sacrifice, we have direct access to him 24-7. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need someone praying on your behalf. That's Old Testament theology. That's the old covenant that you have direct access. You have freedom of speech and you can come into the presence of God with great confidence because of Christ and what he has done. And that's why verse 24 it says, and let us consider what? Because of all of this. It's a privilege to have a relationship with him. And guess what? It is a privilege to have a relationship with the church and a local body of believers. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to, to good works. The second thing is this, is this is not only a privilege, but, but this relationship has, has a purpose. He has a plan. Verse 24 again, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. When you look at that phrase, uh, to stir one another up in a Greek, it means to this, to provoke a response. It can be negative or it can be positive. It can be negative in this, that it can incite someone to anger. It can push someone over the edge. That's the negative use of that word in the Greek. Or it can be positive, which means this. It means to, to inspire someone, to encourage someone, to, to motivate someone in a positive way. In other words, our intimacy with Christ, our relationship with Christ should so transform our lives that as we enjoy the presence of God that, that it should inspire others around us. See, your relationship with him is both personal and public. It was never designed to be personal and private. A lot of people today say, well, wait a minute, my relationship, it's, listen, that's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says that we should live our life in such a way in intimacy with him that as his life flows through us, as there's an overflow of that relationship, it should inspire others to want to know him deeper, to have a deeper relationship with him. I know that there are some men in my life, and whenever I get around them, Man, I'm telling you, and we start opening up Scripture, and we start talking about the Word, and we start talking about um, uh, how to live the Christian life and other things. It motivates, it inspires me to want to learn more about His Word, to live a, a, a deeper life, to connect deeper with Him. Hopefully, there's people around you in your life. Have you ever been around someone, whether it's a, a teacher whether it's a life group leader, whether it's someone, a friend, a relationship, and that when you hear them talking about Scripture, when you hear them talking about their commitment to Christ, that it inspires you to treat each other differently, to live life on a different level in a different plane. This is what this verse is talking about, that we need one. In fact, this is a picture of the local church. It's a picture of the life groups where we get together and we pray for one and we encourage one another. Listen, there are some things in discipleship or, or spiritual transformation that part of spiritual transformation is God uses people around you 
to speak into your life and to encourage you to where it motivates you. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. It says, as iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. What In the Old Testament, iron or metal was a primary element or primary material that they used for, 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 for war. Uh, they made swords and, and things out of. It was a primary uh, metal that they used for, uh, for farming. And so the, they would make and they would forge this, this, this iron. And then the, the way that they would sharpen it is they would bring the two elements, the two things together, and they would sharpen them together. They would sharpen them what? In community with one another, as one would sharpen the others. We, we can do, use butcher knives, and we could take, I used to watch my mom, and, and she'd take two butcher knives in, in our kitchen. And, and man, it made all kinds of racket and noise, and she would like, and she was really good at that. And the, the reason that you do that, what? Is so that the instrument is what? More useful, as far as more productive. And Scripture says the way that we become more useful. Man, is iron sharpened iron, so one man sharpens another. The Christian life is not meant to live, be lived an island to ourself. And you know what? Sometimes in community, it gets loud, right? Sometimes there's some sparks that fly. As one person holds another person accountable or speaks truth into the life. See, there's a lot of people that when they're confronted with something they don't like, they just bail. That's what was happening. Some were neglecting the church. Because I'm telling you, the real question is not accountability. Is Are you correctable? What happens when you come across a scripture and it challenges some of your choices in your lifestyle and your behaviors and habits and thoughts? Do you adjust your life to his word or do you try to make his word adjust to your life? I mean, we all have blind spots. And scripture says that there are some things that you'll never learn and understand or develop in your life about God without a community of believers and belonging to one another. Verse 24 again, it says, and Man, let us consider, let us meditate or ponder how to spur, stir up one another to love and to good works and man, does your life Stir others up around you to go deeper into his word, a deeper commitment. Do you think how you can lead your family differently or deeper, the relationships around you? But when, when, when you look at the New Testament, you, you could do this for yourself. I'll, I'll, I'll read a few of them. There's, de- depending on the translation, whether it's the ESV or the NIV, as long as it's an a- exact equivalency, which would be like the NIV and the, the ESV and the, the King James and the New American Standard and some of those. If you, if you have Bible software, you can search on a couple of words. If, if um, you can get online, I think blue, blueletter.com will allow you to do this and some others. 
But if you will go to those, and if you will search on two words, one another, there are about 47 to 50, depending on the translation, there's about 47 to, uh, to 50 imperatives that can only be fulfilled in a local church. They can only be fulfilled in community with other believers. And it's like, here, here are just a few. And love one another. How can you love one another if you do not know the people that you go to church with? How can you love one another if you never break down into life groups and get to know each other and pray for one another, encourage one another, support? Be devoted. And be devoted to one another. Know what other people are going through. Give praise to one another. Accept. Man, accept one another. Learn to accept people that are different than you. Learn to accept people that, that are different than you, may have different hobbies, different likes, different, different personalities that just kind of grate on you. You realize it's in community that you learn to accept one another. It's in community that you learn to love one another. You will never learn to love someone or accept someone by just a mental exercise. Just You know when you learn to love someone and when you learn to accept is by loving them. See, the scripture says this, that anybody can love someone that's lovable. Anybody can love someone that's likable. Anybody that can love someone that when you bless them, they bless you back. But you know what the scripture says? You know what true love is? When you're able to love the unlovable. When you're able to love that difficult person. When you're able to accept that person that is different than, than you. Admonish one another. Greet one another. That's why our, our greeter ministry is so important to this church because Scripture calls for it. Scripture says that we should learn to greet one another, serve one another, bear one another. In other words, bear one another's burdens. If our, listen, how can you fulfill these commands if you are not participating in a local church? And you do not know the people around you. Pray for one another. Be kind to one another. Forgiving. Well, not forgetting... Forgiving one another. Be hospitable to one another. You know what hospitality is? Hospitality, the shallow definition of hospitality is just having some people in your house. That's not hospitality. That's not the gift of, you know what hospitality is? To where when people are in your home that they know that they've been ministered to. So many times where the focus is, is the place settings right? Is all the china matched? All the dishes match? Is the house clean? All of that other stuff. You know what? That's superficial. The depth of hospitality is that when people are in your homes, do they feel loved? Do they feel ministered to? Do they feel like somebody cares? Be subject to one another. Regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not lie to one another. Comfort one another. Build up. Build up one another. Man, this world, this world will tear you down. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that as you see that day approaching, Meet together more and not neglect. Care for one another. 
Man, live in peace with one another. Man, are you a troublemaker or a peacemaker? Wherever where you go, does trouble start? Or are you looking for ways to, to bring peace in a situation? See, there's a difference between a critic and a, and a servant. See, a critic and a servant will both see the same problem. But they will each respond differently. One will tear down. One will destroy. One will just beat down. But a servant, and a servant will build up. And the Bible says that transformation comes through, through community and life groups where people gather around weekly in homes and, and open up the word and pray together and encourage one another, bear one another's burdens. And, and that by that, you are motivated to walk deeper with him. The last thing is this, is, is it requires participation. One last time, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting. That word in the Greek means to abandon. It means to be an orphan. It means to abandon, not have a family, uh, to be separated. And he says, not neglecting, to meet together. In other words, don't abandon the family. Be a participating member, as this is the habit of some. But encouraging, here's that word again, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day coming. Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm telling you, we need each other. You need this family and this family needs you. And I'm telling you, I I could not explain to you how much I love the local church. The local church for me is what has shaped me, is what inspired me, is what has motivated me. The, the local church is, 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 is the place where, uh, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> well, wait. Okay, let's go. First, I thought it was for me. I'm telling you. The local church has totally and completely shaped me. And there are men that God has brought into my life that spoke truth into my life, that mentored me and developed me I don't know where I'd be without the local church. I don't know where I'd be without coming into community with other believers. Because as iron sharpens iron, so one man does another. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would be a participating member of a local church.